very good afternoon here from Malaysia. Uh, we are continuing uh, our discussion on the Abu Bakar Surajuddin, the Book of Certainty. Uh, this is, uh, I think, uh, the sixth uh, session of the discussion. So as uh, requested by uh, Dr. Kazemi, he would like uh, the session to be more interactive. Uh, so he expects a question uh, from uh, participant of the discussion. So I've been informed earlier, uh, Anwar, Muhammad Anwar, uh, yes, would, yes. Would, would like to ask, uh, I think, uh, one or two questions. Go ahead, Muhammad Anwar. Uh, thanks, uh, Mr. Khalid. And thanks to Dr. Reza for your time also. Uh, firstly, uh, I want to apologize because my English is not good, but I try my best to ask. Um, because of that, I must wrote the, the uh, question first. Uh, the first question, there, there is two questions, one for myself and one for my wife. The first one is, uh, is my question. If I can ask uh, in the first chapter, the book of certainty on the page number two, in referring to the, the burning bush, Dr. Ling used verse 11 and 12 from Surah Taha. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم فلما أتاها نودي يا موسى إني أنا ربك فخلعنا عليك إنك بالوادي المقدس طوى Valley of Tua. And Dr. Lynx connected this verse with the verse 104 from Surah Anbiya which describes the last days. The last day. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم يوم نطوي السماء تطي السجل للكتب كما بدأنا أول خلق نعيده وعدا علينا إن كنا فاعلين The day when we shall, we shall roll up the heaven as at the rolling up of a written scroll The question is It is the day of Prophet Moses extinct in the valley of Tua 3000 years ago maybe is the same day as the Creator shall, shall roll up heaven as the rolling up of a written scroll. How can we understand or measure space and time if we refer to the passage quoted above? This is the first question. Uh, uh, I read one more question. Is it all right? Actually, or? Um, uh, Muhammad, uh, may I ask you just, I didn't quite catch the... Um, you know, are you are you? Can you reformulate your question so that I understand whether you're actually saying that that there is any kind of temporal uh, connection between the two events that uh, Dr. Lings is referring to, or that they are referring to the same archetypal principle, which is above and beyond time and space. What exactly is your question? Um, maybe architect on beyond this time. I don't understand because we live in, in time. Uh, Prophet Moses go, uh, going to the, uh, go to the uh, valley of Tua in, in Quran 3,000 years ago. How can uh, uh, in the link uh, uh, connected this verse with the verse uh, Surah Anbiya? The last day, Yawm al-Akhirah. How can Sheikh uh, uh, Dutalin uh, relate? I see. Uh, I see. I see what you're getting at. Yeah. 
So go uh, go ahead with your second question, and then we'll come back to your first one. Uh, all right, all right. Uh, second question is uh, from my wife, actually. Uh, she asked me to uh, ask you, uh, how dangerous uh, the images coming from our phone or TVs or movies to our soul or to our spiritual life? Uh, and how far we can compromise those images in terms of persevering our soul uh, in the spiritual life? Yes, yeah. Well, that, that second question isn't really to do with the, um, the seminar. So we'll leave that uh, until after the seminar when we have our, oh, maybe yes. we can just have a private discussion. But this right, first right. question is, is definitely part of the seminar format. So um, I'll very quickly try and answer that before we go to another question. Um, what I think Dr. Lings is getting at in making a comparison between two, these two things is that when revelation, when God, as it were, touches uh, the human messenger, when heaven and earth come together, when the sweet seas, the sweet waters of the other life, of the hereafter, make contact with the bitter, salty water of this world, when this miraculous contact takes place between God and man, that can be described either in terms of revelation or in terms of resurrection, or in terms of simple creation. You can go right back and say that, that the point at which the absolute determines itself with a view to manifestation is the point where the principle overflows miraculously from absoluity into relativity. So the very fact of creation is a miracle where instead of one absolute reality without any relativity as a shadow cast by that light being there, suddenly there is a shadow. Suddenly there is something other. And when there's this uh, relationship between the one and the other, we have to understand how to see, to quote the title of one of my books, the other in the light of the one. And that is what revelation does. You are, you are touched. When the messenger is told that you are in this sacred valley, take off your sandals, take off everything that pertains to duality, because now you are in the precincts of divine unity, that miraculous moment of the descent of revelation and the elimination uh, for that time, for that moment of all otherness, where there is simply the self-manifestation of the one within the one. And for you to enter into that oneness, you have to leave behind your otherness. Everything else has to be left behind. So in a similar way, when we are confronted, when the, the heavens and the earth are rolled up like a scroll, and we are face to face with the fulgurating reality of the divinity as our principle of, unfortunately, moral accountability, as well as uh, spiritual illumination and a kind of revelation of the reality that we've been putting off all of our life, and suddenly here we are face to face with it, that moment is analogous to the reception of, of revelation, that we've become receptive to re divine revelation at that point, even if that is, is, is terrifying and it, it strips you of all of your, your veils and your uh, masks and your 
impulses to your know, defensive impulses and so on and so forth. You're terrified in the face of this um, manifestation of the reality that you've known about in one uh, respect all of your life, but now suddenly it's it's unveiled itself, and here you are. So that's the way. So yes, it, they pertain to the same archetype, the the revelation to Moses, whether it was at the burning bush or on Mount Sinai, that revelation of God, where God says, Inni ana, ana, ana Allah, when he says, truly, I am God. And then when on Mount Sinai, he reveals himself and Moses is reduced to ashes. As you know, the verse, you're a hafiz of the Quran, you know the verse better than I do. Um, um, perhaps you can remind us of the the dialogue at that point. Do you remember what it was that? Uh, uh, do you remember? I didn't remember. That it, it, uh, maybe uh, maybe Abdurrahman Adnan remembers the verse. And I don't want anyone looking up in Google and doing it cheating. I want it from <laughs> memory, please. <laughs> Moses says to God, please, I want to see you. He says, God says back to Moses, you will not see me, but look at the mountain. If it stays in its place, when I reveal myself to it, then you will see me. So, falamma tajalla. For, so mm. when God manifested himself to the mountain, the mountain crumbled. And Moses was, was uh, Musa Sa'iqa. And Moses fell into a swoon. So again, this is the 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 sort of spiritual or mystical subjective uh, counterpart. To divine revelation that is a complete uh extinction of everything other than what is being revealed so from the from the mystical point of view the one who receives revelation is like each one of us on the day of judgment when we when we die basically when we are when we fall into our death pangs and we see the heavens and the earth rolling up because the heavens and the earth being rolled up like a scroll is not only to be seen as a kind of phenomenological description of what happens on the day of judgment it's to be understood as a very real phenomenological description of what happens at the moment, the moments of death, the death pangs, when we are touched by the angel of death, and we go through a microcosmic dissolution, where all of the heavens and the earth are rolled up, where the sun becomes eclipsed by the moon, and when the stars are made dust-colored, everything that the Quran describes in the wonderful surahs, in the Juz Amma, with all of those extraordinary gripping, poetic, um, devastating descriptions of the end of the of the cosmos, of the dissolution of this universe. All of those things can be read and interpreted microcosmically as exactly what happens to each one and each and every one of us when we are in the throes of death. So this is something that infinitely goes beyond uh, a, a mere temporal or spatial 
comparison. It's to do with the archetype of revelation, the archetype of resurrection, the archetype of the process of um, destruction of the cosmos and of the individual in the very revelation of the divine reality, whether it be through revelation as such, scriptures and so on, or the revelation of the realities of the hereafter on the day of judgment macrocosmically or on the day of our death microcosmic. Remember what the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that man mata faqad qamat qiyamatuhu, he who has died, truly his qiyama has been established using the same root, the word of qiyama and qama and mustaqim, all of these come from the same root to set something up, to establish it, but also to rise up again. And as you know, Dr. Ling's preferred to translate astirat al-mustaqim as being the ascending path, the vertical path, not just the straight path, which can be either horizontal or vertical, but he wanted to emphasize that this is a path that takes you right up vertically. So just to return to that idea, very, very fundamental idea that uh, Tim Winter, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, has very, very well explained in his um, in his commentary on Al-Ghazali's, I think it's part of, an, uh, of a note in his translated uh, work of Al-Ghazali's Kitab al-Mawt, which is book 40 of the Ikhya Ulum al-Din. So, uh, yeah, I'll finish there. So can we go to any other question while I just get myself together and I'll, I'll get the camera fixed up and everything. Can we go to another question? All right, anyone else want to ask a question? Just to follow up on the, um, uh, on the question just now, in is the relationship between the the receiving of the revelation or the uh, the meeting with the divine and uh, qiyama does that mean also that the the experience of receiving uh, revelation such as experienced by the prophet وسلم, uh, was akin to uh, experiencing uh, death very much so yes and that's precisely why all of his faculties, his um, ordinary empirical faculties of cognition, um, were suspended uh, when he was receiving revelation. He, in a certain sense, the man Muhammad, was, uh, was dead, was obliterated, was extinguished, was having a state of fana. And in that state alone, where the receptacle, the human receptacle of the message um, the messenger as such, as a messenger, that receptacle was completely empty of all of the contents of empirical consciousness. It had to be completely empty in order to be completely filled with the, the divine wine of, uh, of pure revelation, having nothing to do with human relativity, human modes of, of consciousness, of receptivity, of imagination. And this is what makes all the more galling the recent theories that have been I've heard about coming out of, well, from the mouths of various um, Iranian philosophers, 
to the effect that uh, you know trying desperately to be apologetic about the Quran and to bring Quranic revelation into line with the Christian conception of revelation, which is just that the prophets in the plural were men who received the spirit of inspiration. And remember the word inspiration means exactly that, the, the breathing in of the spirit. Um, the Christian conception is that the prophets, as opposed to Jesus, who was not a prophet in the Christian conception at all, he was a he was simply God. He was the Son of God. He was um, the the Word made flesh, but he was not simply a prophet because the prophets were just human beings who received some kind of inspiration from the Holy Spirit, and they gave form to that inspiration through their own imagination. And so this has been in all the in many of the interfaith conferences I've attended between Muslims and Christians. This was always brought out as a major difference between the Christian conception of revelation to prophets and the Muslim conception of revelation to all of the prophets. Um, and so some Muslim philosophers, uh, Iranian ones, I won't mention any names, have recently been saying that um, that the prophets, uh, the prophet Muhammad's revelation can be compared to the kind of revelations um, that came to the prophets in the Christian conception, which is that he gave imaginal form to that which was inspired within him. So his own, it was like, and uh, one even goes so far as to say that it's like a dream that the prophet's revelations, the Quran, is basically a book of dreams. It's a diary of, of dreams. Um, and so this understanding that we have from Al-Ghazali in particular about the nature of revelation, which is that all of the, the human faculties of cognition uh, have been put into a state of, I don't know if you can call it this suspended animation, that they're still alive, but they're animus that the, the soul has been put into suspense so it's like you've frozen the the human cognitive faculties um, momentarily and that in that state of suspended animation the pure spirit of revelation comes in and that state of suspended animation is certainly like a kind of death yes all right thank you dr reza um, i think uh, yeah i also want to ask a question yeah uh, mm. This is on page four, yeah. Uh, page four, I think, also related to what you have explained just now, yeah. Uh, my particular question is regarding some the pronouns used by by the links in the book, yeah. Uh, uh, the self, yeah, S capital S, in all that is left to universal man, uh, in whom the veil of the self, self is a uh, uh, small letter S, uh, which hit it, uh, it with uh, capital I, uh, mm -hmm. has been utterly consumed by the truth. Yeah. Uh, can you explain more about that? Yeah. Uh, in that sense, the the uh, the prophet also, as a universal man. Yeah, uh, when when he received the revelation, his uh, all his uh, faculties yeah, uh, completely 
uh, obliterated. Yeah, the, his self was a kind of veil. Yeah, uh, for the true self. Exactly. Yeah, I think you've answered it there. That the, the, the self with the capital S and the I with the capital I for, for, T, for it, <clears throat> the self <clears throat> has the veil of the small self, the individual ego. And the, uh, in order, I think the reason why Dr. Lings has gone from self with a capital S to it with a capital I is to go from a sense of the supreme subject, which is the self, and the supreme object, which is it, which he could have said he. Um, mm. And so between the supremacy of subjectivity and the supremacy or sublimity of objectivity, the divine self conceived as pure being or beyond being, which is an it or a he, an other, it's something other than existence. Um, both dynamics come into play in extinguishing the, uh, the illusory subjectivity of the empirical self and the equally illusory objectivity of the self as something in existence. So you have the two dimensions of the individual empirical self, which have to be extinguished. You have the self as subject and you have the self as object. The small self is a limited subjectivity. And what is limited negates that which it is not. And so you have to negate that negativity arising out of the limitations of limited subjectivity by referring to it as the supreme beyond being, the supreme object that obliterates relative illusory subjectivity. But you also need the supreme self with a capital S as the source of all subjectivity, true subjectivity, true consciousness, which obliterates all illusory objectivity, which is constituted by the existence, the empirical existence of the small self. So I think in that way, you can bring together the, uh, the use of those pronouns. Mm. All right. Uh, um, so what may I suggest that we... Um, we are now it's 10 past 10. Uh, yeah, could we ask uh, Abdurrahman to read? I think we'd got to page uh, six, was it? It's eight. Uh, now it depends on what edition we've got, of course. Where uh, do you... Universal man realizes eternity in the truth. Right. Mm. Go ahead. Universal man realizes eternally in the truth that he is nothing, and yet that he is everything. But such realization is beyond his human soul. And this is what is meant by the saying, the slave remains the slave. The slave cannot become God, since he is either the slave 
as in appearance, or nothing at all, as in reality. Universal man cannot make his human soul divine, like the souls of all other men. But with an outstanding difference of quality, it implies the illusion of an existence apart from God. It differs from them, not in kind, but in what might also be called an organic consciousness that this separate existence is in truth no more than an illusion. There is a saying that Muhammad is a man, yet not as other men, but like a jewel among stones. Albeit the soul remains the soul, just as night remains night, or else it vanishes and there is day. But though the soul of universal man cannot itself attain to the direct truth of the of the truth of certain to the direct knowledge of the truth of certainty, yet unlike other souls, it is touched in its center by a ray of light proceeding from the sun of the spirit of the truth. For this perfect soul, represented in Islam by the soul of the Prophet, is none other than the night of power, Laylatul Qadr, into which descend the angels and the spirit, and the heart, that is the point of this spiritual race contact, is as a full moon in the unclouded night of the perfect soul, making it better than a thousand months of other nights that is peerless among all other souls. This moon from which the soul looks towards the sun of the spirit is the eye of certainty and its presence makes the soul at peace until the break of dawn, until the night vanishes, until the soul together with its peace is extinguished in the light of reality, leaving only the absolute Peace of unity. Shall I go on? Yes, please. Although the existence of any perfection or indeed of anything at all apart from God is an illusion, the illusory perfections of the created universe may nonetheless serve as guides and incentives to one who has not yet attained to the truth, inasmuch as they are images of his perfection. Of these images, the highest and fullest, which can be readily conceived by one who has not passed beyond the limits of this world, is the human perfection itself. Moreover, this perfection, unlike other earthly perfections, is a state through which the traveler, uh, a static, must himself pass on his way to the truth. Therefore, the religions have greatly extolled the state of human perfection setting it up as a lamp to mark the end of the first stage of the journey. Just as one might tell a man who had long lived in darkness to look at the full moon, knowing that the light of the sun would serve at first rather to blind than to guide him. And so universal man, whose state is the end of the journey, is represented as having two perfect natures, the perfect human nature and nasud being merely a reflection or image of the divine nature, Allahut, besides which in reality it is nothing, though to the traveler it seems nearer and more accessible. In accordance with that, uh, in accordance with what has already been said, the two natures might be called the perfect self and the perfect self. 
the perfect self uh, in small letters uh, and the perfect self, yeah. capital P and S. The former corresponding to Ahmad the Arab and the latter being the one Lord. The perfect human nature stands as it were between the traveler and the divine nature in the sense that he must acquire the one before he may rise from it to the other. And here lies one of the interpretations of the saying that no one may meet God if he has not first met the prophet. Universal man with his two natures is figured in the seal of Solomon, of which the upper and lower triangles represent respectively the divine and the human nature. In virtue of this, in, in virtue of this duality, he is the mediator between heaven and earth, and it is owing to this function that he is sometimes referred to as the Ismus al-Barzab, as in the chapter of the distinct revelation. And he is, and he it is, who hath let loose the two seas, one sweet and fresh, the other salt and bitter, and hath set between them an Ismus, an impassable barrier. Quran, chapter 25, verse 53. In his heart alone does the sweet sea of the next world meet the salt sea of this, and by reason of this meeting, his human nature itself is the noblest and best of all earthly things, as it is, as is affirmed in the chapter of the fig. Verily, we created man in the fairest rectitude. Uh, chapter yeah. 90, 90, 95, Quran, chapter 95, verse 4. The nearness of heaven, by reason of its presence, even causes sometimes the laws of earth to cease perceptibly, just as the moon grows pale at the approach of day, and it is as such, and, and it is at such moments that a miracle may take place, such as the changing of water into wine, or the step which leaves a print upon the rock and none upon the sand. As in the seal of Solomon, his central function as mediator is also figured in the cross, which is another symbol of universal man in that the horizontal line represents the fullness of its earthly nature, whereas the vertical line represents his heavenly exaltation. And yet another of his symbols is the crescent, for like a cup, it indicates his function of receiving the divine grace. And at the same time, like the horns of the bull, it indicates his majesty, his function of administering this grace throughout the whole universe. Blessed be he who hath made the distinct revelation unto his servant, that he might be for all the worlds a warner. Quran, verse 25, chapter 25, verse 1. Thank you very much, um, Abdurrahman. So yes, let's go to this wonderful saying, which I hope one of you will be able to give me the Arabic of, uh, that Muhammad is a man, yet not as other men, but like a jewel among stones. Can I have the Arabic from one of our great Hufal? Uh, our great uh, people who know the Quran off by heart, but also whose Arabic is excellent. This is obviously not in the Quran, 
but it's a very important statement uh, passed down through the oral tradition largely and uh, used in Sufi chants and songs. So may I have a shirt? Can I see who can tell me what the Arabic of that is? No? Mama Farhan always singing the song. Muhammad. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Come on, I want someone who knows the song. Muhammad Basharun wa laysa kal bashar bal huwa ya kutatu Exactly. But we, can we have a little bit more of the spirit of Sufism rather than the spirit of the Hafiz? Muhammadun Basharun Walaikal Bashar Balhuwa Yakuta Allah. All right. So before we get carried away into a Samar. <laughs> Which, uh, which Dr. Ling's very, very much loved. In fact, the Sufi Sama, uh, the, the spiritual concept, the chanting of all of these wonderful truths in order to bring them closer to the heart uh, was something that Dr. Ling's truly loved. So yes, Muhammadun Basharun Balaysa Kal Bashar, Balhuwaya Kutatun Wanasu Kal Hajar. Muhammad is a man, but not like other men. Rather, he is like a ruby. Yaqut is, uh, is a ruby among other stones. So this is a marvelous evocation of the of two truths, really, that Dr. Lings is getting at in this, in this passage, that the soul of universal man, of the perfect man, of the perfect human being. That soul can never as such be transformed into God. The human soul remains human. And that's why he refers to, I think this is from Ibn Arabi, he doesn't give the source, but it was Ibn Arabi who says, Al-Abd yabaqa al-Abd. The slave always remains the slave. And so what is it about the slavehood that uh, distinguishes the perfect man from the slavehood of the imperfect man, people like us? The difference is something that you can only symbolically speak about. And that's why this image is so appropriate, that on the one hand, the slavehood of a human being like us is like stone. And the slavehood of the, uh, the ruby is also the stone aspect of the ruby. But when you're looking only at the slavehood, you can't distinguish between the stoneness of us, ordinary pebbles, and the stoneness of the ruby. It's one and the same stone-ness, the category of stone, of rock. But when you take into account the properties of the different stones, then you see that there is no common measure between the beautiful redness of the ruby and the dull grayness of ordinary pebbles. And so this is a marvelous evocation of at one and the same time, the humanity that unites us to the great messengers, but also to the aspect of divinity having touched those stones 
that those stones of the prophets and transforming them into these beautiful precious jewels and let's think here also i think dr lings would want us to keep in mind here the hadith qudsi um the the, the, the holy saying in which god speaks through the tongue of the prophet saying kuntu kanzan mahfiyan fa'ahabtu an oraf i was a hidden treasure and i loved to be known so i created the world i think he would want us to keep that in the back of our mind that this hidden treasure these beautiful precious jewels in the infinitude and invisibility of the divine essence have become manifest first and foremost through those particular jewels which the prophets are and then the reflections of those jewels as precious stones that the saints are and then the rest of us who all have to aspire to to this to to return to our our true nature um and also uh when it when we're thinking about precious stones um there is i'm just trying to remember in which Yes, the ruby of, of Badakhshan, Nasser Khosrow, um, one of the greatest poets in the in the Persian language, Nasser Khosrow, uh, not to be confused with Nasiruddin Tusi, um, the great uh, scientist, philosopher, theologian, and mystic of the 13th century, that the Mongol period. Uh, but uh, Nasser Khosrow was. Um, was referred to as the ruby of Badakhshan. And he was an Ismaili in the Fatimid period who lived in this beautiful area called Badakhshan, what's present-day Tajikistan. Uh, and he was asked, why do you live in this out there, you know, this this relative wilderness when you could be in Cairo, Fatimid Cairo, heart of civilization? What are you doing out there? And he said, if you find a ruby in a barren valley, then does that diminish the value of the ruby at all? No, the ruby remains what it is, whatever land it's in. Anyway, so and he has some lovely poems about, <clears throat> about the ruby. So this is a, a particularly important stone. And, um, and I think Muslim um, scientists, uh, in the real sense of the term, sacred science, have written about the particular properties of the ruby that make it a very appropriate stone with which to compare the prophet's um, beauty. So uh, let's carry on. Uh, what else? The Laylatul Qadr. Well, actually, let's go to the um, what I think is probably the most important. Yes, let's do this. Uh, let's look at the Quran uh, 20. Five, which is the Surah Al-Furqan, if I'm not mistaken. Can anyone recite the Arabic of that for us by memory and not by, by looking it up? If not, Muhammad, uh, uh, can anyone remember this? Huwaladi what? Uh, let loose the two seas, one sweet and one fre and fresh. The other salt and bitter. I already wrote the uh, verse, Quranic verse in the in this book. 
So I will not stop in this quest for the meeting place, the Majma al Bahrain, the two seeds, until even if I have to walk on for ages, Moses says here. And I'll just read for you what Dr. Lings gives as the commentary on this, this isthmus, this barzakh. Um, in that verse we just had recited, it was called the barzakh, the meeting place. But in this one, in the surah of the cave, it's called the majma al-Bahrain, the place where the two, uh, the two seas come together. The point of junction, I think, would be the uh, the most literal translation of majma, the kind of the junction. Um, so what Dr. Ling says is the, the isthmus, uh, and then he gives a reference back to page one in terms of the barza. So what he says on page one is, uh, actually, I can't see what he says on page one. Anyway. This isthmus is the precinct of his mediation between heaven and earth. And therefore the goal of the quest for human perfection. Sometimes the sweet sea, the symbol of heaven, is replaced by the sky with its fresh water carrying clouds. The lost center being then at the surface of the salt waters of this world. So it is in a Chinese legend, which represents the traveler as a fish swimming upwards through these lower waters. When the fish reaches the surface, there descends upon it from the clouds, the spirit in the form of a bird. And the bird and the fish unite together and become a dragon whose wings and scales symbolize the two natures, heavenly and earthly, 
of the saint. That's a lovely way of, of filling out the, the imagery here and what it is that, in a sense, um, uh, Al-Khidr is representing, because as you know, when Moses goes back, uh, well, just to continue with the story, uh, in case some of you don't know, that um, in the surah of the cave, Moses says this to his, his fata, his servant, and they actually get to the point. So when they actually got to the meeting, this, this junction between the two waters, uh, they forgot their fish and it took its way into the, into the sea, uh, liberated. And then when they went ahead a little bit more, Falamma Jawaza, Kala Lepatahu, Atina Rada, and Alapada Lapina, Min Safarina, Hada, Nasaba. So he says to his, his servant, We've got tired in this journey. Let's have our, our fish, our, uh, our meal. And then the boy says, did you not see that when we took refuge at that rock, how does it go? Um, uh, so didn't you, didn't you say when we took refuge at that rock, I forgot about the fish and Shaitan made me forget to mention this, and the fish came to life. We're told we really understand, although it's not explicitly said. The fish came to life because a drop of the water at that particular place had fallen upon it and it took its way into it, it came back to life. This is the the elixir, eternal life, the drop of water has brought the, the dead fish that we're going to eat back to life, and it swims away. So here we're feeding into all of these great symbols of the fish coming to life, the fish, as you know, being a symbol of, of, of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection, and therefore kun fayakun, uh, the bringing of the dead to life. All of these images and associations are evoked in this meeting place of the two rivers and of Moses's quest for the meaning of life, the elixir of life, the philosopher's stone. And it's interesting that the boy says, don't you remember when we took refuge at the stone? Um, and this fed into the whole alchemical uh, symbolism of the philosopher's stone, the elixir, and uh, this miracle of, as it's expressed in Chinese legend, of the fish that swims up and at the point that it reaches the surface of the water, it becomes one with a bird. And then we have the dragon, which has both scales referring to the earthly aspect and wings relating to the heavenly aspect. So this is all very, very powerful imagery, powerful symbolism. So let's go back to, yes, uh, in his heart alone does the sweet sea of the next world meet the salt sea of this. And by reason of this meeting, his human nature itself 
is the noblest and best of all earthly things, as is affirmed in the chapter of the fig. Verily we created man in the fairest rectitude. Again, we go back to this idea of, of uprightness, of verticality. Taqweem here is described as rectitude, which has a kind of moral implication. But sometimes I think uh, the word stature has been used for taqweem uh, in the finest uh, stature. Um, the finest nature. And all of this relates to Al-Qayyum as the divine name, that which is eternally established, eternally, as it were, vertically oriented towards the infinitude of the divine reality. So this being created in the fairest rectitude is actually uh, a description of insan, whereas here, Dr. Lings is saying that this is a description of the prophetic perfection. So how can we relate this meaning in a general sense to the prophet in a specific sense? What is it that the prophet is revealing about our own human nature? And here I would give this comment as possibly the, the last thing I want to say before I open up to questions. I think I've gone beyond the 10 minutes, haven't I? Yeah, one more minute. Yeah. One more minute. So, uh, yes, let's use Jalaluddin Rumi to explain this. Uh, what it, why it is that Dr. Ling's refers to this surah. Atin, watini was zaitun, matura sinin, wahad al baladil amin, lakada halakan al insana fi ahsan taquim, thumara dadanahu asfalasa filin. So in this surah, we're told that God is swearing, he's taking an oath by the fig and the olive and the mountain of Sinai. And this land made secure, understood to mean Mecca, but also esoterically to mean the heart, the land, the inner land, the inner landscape of the heart containing the throne of God. That has been made secure. We indeed have created man in the finest stature, in the finest rectitude. Then we reduced him to be the lowest of the low. Is not God the finest of judges? So without going into all of those, the English of those verses, it suffices to say that after God has sworn by all of these symbols of revelation, it's understood by the Sufis that the fig uh, refers to the, well, I say the Sufis, some Sufis have talked about the fig uh, as being part of the, uh, the family of the tree under which, the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha received his, in his illumination. So um, I've used that actually in, in my book on uh, Islam and Buddhism. Um, uh, and and the olive is, is seen to refer to Jesus, the revelation of Sayyidina Isa. 
and uh, Mount Sinai, Moses, and of course the Balad, I mean Mecca to the Prophet Muhammad. So we have four great messengers being referred to symbolically in these opening oaths. And then we indeed created man in the finest stature. We created him according to the fitra. We created him perfect as the image. Uh, Truly, God created man according to his own image, the prophet says in a famous hadith, which is a reflection, of course, of Genesis. We, in, in, man, in the image of God and in God's likeness was, uh, was man created. So, having created the human being, Adam, the Adamic reality, the androgene, the perfection of both the, the, the masculine and the feminine within one entity that is a perfect reflection, a manifestation of the divine, which both transcends and comprises both polarity, the two poles of, of humanity, masculinity and femininity. So Adam as such, the Adam Kadmon, as he's called in the Jewish tradition in Kabbalah, the, uh, the primordial androgynous Adamic Kadmon reality. That is perfection. But then we reduce this human being to the lowest of the low, meaning not that God somehow arbitrarily and anthropomorphically, willfully just said, well, I've had enough of this perfect human being. Let's make him wretched and make him spill blood and cause corruption. And do this, that, and the other, as if that were uh, in any way intelligible to the, the, the human heart. No, what it means is this is what happened to this perfect, perfect human being that we have created and to whom we gave this fundamental and potentially very dangerous faculty, which is free will. We endowed this human being with freedom. And with that freedom, this is what happened after many, many ages. And so we, unfortunately, in the 11th hour, what the Hindus would call the Kali Yuga, this dark age, we are in this period of the lowest of the low. And how do we get out of it? Unless we believe in God, we act virtuously, and we'll be given a reward unlimited. So what Rumi helps us to understand very beautifully. This is not in his Masnavi, but this is in his discourses, Kitab Fihi Ma Fihi, the book that contains what it contains. Rumi gave that title to this, which is a series of discourses he gave, largely in response to questions from his disciples. And he said that uh, in relation to a verse similar to yeah, the verse that says, He looks at the first part of this verse. Truly, a prophet has come from your own souls. Now, exoterically, that simply means from the vahir, the apparent, the, the literal point of view, a prophet has come from amongst you. 
He's one of you Arabs. That's all it means. But esoterically, Rumi says it means this. That the prophets, all of them, and not just the prophet Muhammad, but all of the prophets have come from the pure ocean of heaven. And they come into this muddy world where we are similarly, in essence, drops of pure water. But we have allowed the mud of this world, the clay of which we were made, to, as it were, infiltrate and pollute the purity of the water of which we were made from the heavenly substance. And so when we see the prophets coming and we see these drops of pure water, pools of water, let's say, that are like reflections of the infinite oceans of heaven from which we all were likewise created as drops, we see the prophets and we recognize ourselves in them. And that's why we follow them. That's why we believe them, because we are affirming nothing other than what we ourselves are in our own essence, pure heavenly water, through which the beauties of the divine names and qualities are transparent, they're visible, they're being reflected. They're in the imminent depths of the oceans above. Remember the inversion we have to think of here is that the pure oceans, the pools of paradise, are ones which in depth contain the hidden treasures of the divine essence, but also reflect the treasures which are transcendent. And that's what makes paradise like the, the radiation of the divine essence. So this is the kind of imagery that uh, Rumi uses to help us to understand that the prophets are nothing other than the exteriorization of our own inmost realities, which are one with that in the image of which we were made, which is the divine reality. So I think I'll stop on that point and uh, we'll open up to questions. All right, so I think that concludes our discussion today and we give a few more minutes for post-seminar uh, question. All right, thank okay. you very much, Dr. You're Rizal. welcome. You're welcome, Mr. Khalid. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.